Hi and welcome to Infatuated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca and we're here with the second instalment of our three-part myth and folklore special with a theme near and dear to both of us on this podcast, women who are sick of people speaking for them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We like, we like when women talk, so that's what we're talking about today. But before we crack on with that, Let's have some women talking. What is new with you? What have I done? I have done some embroidery this week. You saw me start that project, but I finished that. I started a really big book. I don't know. It's been a week of like kind of working, to be honest, which is quite boring. But oh, I did want to shout something out, actually. Okay. So for anyone who liked Stephanie's insights in the Song of Achilles last week, she has released that like full essay that I was reading from on her blog. Oh, that's so cool! Um, so I will link that in the show notes if you want to read all of it because I had to I had to pick out little things I didn't get to talk about so much of it. But yeah, she's she's written it all out in one big blog post. So I'll I'll link it so anyone who's interested can read that as well. Oh, I love that! Thanks, Stephanie. What have you been up to this week? <laughs> I've been kind of the same busy jumping back into work but I do have to say full-time work without uni is about 50 times more manageable than full-time work with uni (laughs) yeah so that's nice like I just can't believe how much time is in a day now when I don't have to spend two hours a day doing uni work like it's it's incredible (laughs) also I have something I want to shout out which is that after our last recording, I read Song of Achilles mm-hmm. and I, you know, I absolutely gulped it down. I read it in like three days. Um, <laughs> and yeah. honestly, I can't endorse Emily's recommendation of it enough because it is <laughs> so good. And I already, because I'd already heard her bit of the last episode, I knew the end, I knew all the plot, but it's still so heartbreaking and so amazing. And I loved it so much that now I keep hearing it in all the songs that I listen to. There's your recommendation. (laughs) And so on that note, what have you got in your Greek mythology store today, Emily? Today I have got Madeline Miller's second book. I've got Circe, oh. which is a very pretty book. I'll show you. I don't know if you can see. I oh, can't see so myself shiny. on the screen. <laughs> so obviously I talked about the Song of Achilles last week, and this is her second book that came out last year, 2019. And it's such a brilliant second book. She's really built on that like myth tone mm. um, that she captured in the Song of Achilles, but what she's done this time is tackle a lesser known, like kind of underrepresented Greek character, which I think gives her more room to explore, actually, because we know less about her. Yeah. I mean, that was why the Song of Achilles was based around Patroclus, because he was a minor character who had a big knock on effect. Mm-hmm. And the same can be said for Circe, the title character, which I believe is why she picked her to base a story around. And I actually didn't really know Cersei's story before. I don't know if you did. Or... No, no, I'm not familiar at all. Yeah, or or so I thought I've written <laughs> on my notes. And I say that because this book depicts how integral she is to so many other myths. Okay. So, like, really famous Greek myths, but I had no idea that she was part of them. Okay. And I just think it's a shame that, like, such an interesting woman, 
like wasn't known to me. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I love about what Miller has done. She's given this really remarkable woman her own story. So even though other stories are included, we get to see how she's woven into them. But it is her book. It's from her point of view. It's got like her opinions and emotions and everything. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I just love it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so again, this week I'm going to talk about all of the book. The source material has been around since ancient Greece, so I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything. (laughs) And there's loads I've not mentioned so that your enjoyment of reading the book is not ruined. Yay! (laughs) But yeah, as last week, this is your spoiler warning. If you really, really, really don't want to know what happens, just skip ahead. (laughs) Right, so... Miller drew upon the Odyssey. Some is it Ovid or Ovid? I never know. I I'd say Ovid, but Ovid, yeah, I, that's probably right. The Argonautica and a lost epic called the Telegony. And Miller says that Circe and Penelope, who is Odysseus's wife, are two of the most interesting women in Greek myth to her. And the Telegony gave her the excuse to put them both in the same room because um, Telegonus, who it's obviously about, is Circe and Odysseus's son. Right. <laughs> oh, but Odysseus, oh. Mm, yep, yep. <laughs> oh, he's been playing the fields, has Odysseus. <laughs> so I'll, I'll jump back to the start. I'll explain who Circe is. She is the daughter of Helios, the sun god, who's a titan and Perse, or Perse, I think it's Perse. Again, sorry if I pronounced the names wrong. I tried to look up how to pronounce them. And Circe feels like an outsider in their family. She is named Circe, which means hawk, and it's because her cry as a baby was like really piercing. And her voice is described as like being really horrible to like all the gods, but it turns out that it's just because it sounds like a human voice. Oh, that's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we already know that she's different from her family because obviously nothing is more different from a god than like a mortal, even though it's like just her voice and not like herself. Ugh, mortals. Um, <laughs> and I have a quote from the beginning of the book here where she describes her home. My father's halls were dark and silent. His palace was a neighbour to Oceanus, buried in the earth's rock, and its walls were made of polished obsidian. Why not? They could have been anything in the world, blood-red marble from Egypt or balsam from Araby. My father had only to wish it so. But he liked the way the obsidian reflected his light, the way its slick surfaces caught fire as he passed. Of course, he did not consider how black it would be when he was gone. My father had never been able to imagine the world without himself in it. Oh man, what a mood. (laughs) I love this because like we're seeing Madeline Miller's beautiful description which I've obviously raved about (laughs) last week but I also love the idea that Helios is like so self-centered that he can't picture the world without him but also that like we can't either because he's literally the sun. Yeah, (laughs) it's like that idea of like you think the sun shines out your arse but actually for him it does Mm -hmm. (laughs) so like he he flies across the sky in his chariot and like that's how we see the sun moving across the sky Ah. 
But as well, we also have that indication that like Cersei feels trapped and alone at home because it's you know black and dark and no light. Yeah, I just think it's a really good way to like start your description of this home. Mm, definitely. And this is also a good time to point out that Cersei is not just a goddess; she is a witch. <gasps> oh yes, I'm <laughs> she... so down for this. <laughs> She is actually the first witch. They didn't have a word for her in the Western worlds before her. She's often called an enchantress in epic poetry as well. So yeah, her power doesn't come from the divine, like from her godliness. It comes from her witchcraft. And witchcraft is totally different from divine power. It's something that you have to train yourself to do. But she does so. So she basically decides to invent her own power, which is just cool. That's so cool. Oh, I love this girl already. Yeah. So I actually have a quote here where Cersei explains like why the gods look down upon witchcraft. Let me say what sorcery is not. It is not divine power which comes with a thought and a blink. It must be made and worked, planned and searched out, dug up, dried, chopped and ground, cooked, spoken over and sung. Even after all that, it can fail, as gods do not. If my herbs are not fresh enough, if my attention falters, if my will is weak, the draughts go stale and rancid in my hands. By rights, I should never have come to witchcraft. Gods hate all toil, it is their nature. The closest we come is weaving or smithing, but these things are skills and there is no drudgery to them since all the parts that might be unpleasant are taken away with power. The wool is dyed not with stinking vats and stirring spoons, but with a snap. There is no tedious mining, the oars leap willing from the mountain. No fingers are ever chafed, no muscles strained. Witchcraft is nothing but such drudgery. Each herb must be found in its den, harvested at its time, rubbed up from the dirt, culled and stripped, washed and prepared. It must be handled this way, then that, to find out where its power lies. Day upon patient day, you must throw out your errors and begin again. So why did I not mind? Why did none of us mind? I cannot speak for my brothers and sister, but my answer is easy. For a hundred generations, I had watched the world drowsy and dull, idle and at my ease. I left no prints, I did no deeds. Even those who had loved me a little did not care to stay. Then I learned that I could bend the world to my will, as a bow is bent for an arrow. I would have done that toil a thousand times to keep such power in my hands. I thought, this is how Zeus felt when he first lifted the thunderbolt. Oh my god. Oh, it's <laughs> so good. I love how she's almost like a scientist. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I love like, I just love like the repetition and the listening and stuff in this quote. Like, I think it does give you that image of like toiling over something. Mm, monotony. Um, yeah, and like there's a, a lot that goes on in the story, but the overarching kind of emotional journey that Cersei goes on, um, I would argue, is like acceptance of herself and the way that she uses her power. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get into that like more as I go, but I think from this quote near the start of the book, you can already see that she may go a little power mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit drunk on the on the power there. I love the like the comparison to Zeus as well because it's like you've said it's like a new a new power like even the gods got bored mm -hmm. 
So yeah, the plot kind of kicks off when Cersei meets Glaucus, who is human, and she falls in love with him, and she uses a spell on him that basically it turns a person into like their true form. Okay. Um, and with Glaucus, this turns him into a god. Oh. Um, so Cersei is excited that they can be together, like because of this. But instead of thanking her how she imagines he would, he goes off with a nymph called Scylla. The bastard. Because <laughs> the spell kind of, it kind of like takes his humanity away, right. in a way. Which is like that compassionate side that she fell for. And because of this, Cersei is jealous of Scylla right. and decides to use the same spell on her. But that turns Scylla into a monster. Okay. Because <laughs> Scylla's not a nice nymph. <laughs> <laughs> so that monster has six dog-like heads. Right. On like this really long neck. And she like picks off sailors as they sail past her cave. Nice. She sounds charming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's lots of jokes about how like, oh, she was always a bitch. <laughs> and then like, she gets turned into this like dog monster thing. <laughs> So yeah, because of this, Cersei is exiled to, oh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I think it's Aia, I think is how you say it. Okay. Like a deserted island, basically. And she lives there by herself as punishment. And obviously, like, she's a god, so she's immortal. She's alive for a very long time. Mm. She has to be alone. But when she's on this island, she does get visitors over the years. And we get to see, like, her different interactions with them. Hermes comes and like gives her gossip and <laughs> he like sleeps with her because that's what Hermes does like yeah like some nymphs come and stay for a while uh, it's kind of like the wayward daughter nymphs like right. just get like shipped off to her island and she like strains them out and then <laughs> but she is granted leave from the island when her sister uh, Pasiphae goes into labor and it's a very difficult labor because <laughs> the father of a child is a sacred bull, which she shouldn't have slept with for a myriad of reasons. Mm. <laughs> um, but we get the fantastic line, I fucked the sacred bull, alright? <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, man. So basically, Pacifae and the sacred bull <laughs> create this, like, devil child, which is the Minotaur. Yeah, I saw that coming. Yeah, yeah. So Cersei's part of the Minotaur story, which is ah. cool. She uses witchcraft to kind of like subdue it, while Daedalus builds the labyrinth which the Minotaur is trapped in. Mm. And who's Daedalus? Icarus's dad! Oh, that guy! <laughs> and yeah, so that brings me to one of my favourite parts of this book. So I'll give a wee bit of context for the quote. Cersei and Daedalus have like this relationship while she's granted this leave and Daedalus gives her a beautifully crafted loom as a parting gift like when she has to go back to the island Mm -hmm. and I'm just going to read out that passage. I stepped onto the ship and lifted my hand. He lifted his. I had not fooled myself with false hope. I was a goddess and he a mortal and both of us were imprisoned. But I pressed his face into my mind, as seals are pressed in wax, so I could carry it with me. I did not open those crates until we were out of sight. I wish I had, so I might have thanked him properly. 
Inside one were undyed wools and yarns and flax of every kind. In the other, the most beautiful loom I had ever seen, made from polished cedar. I have it still. It stands near my hearth and has even found its way into the songs. Perhaps that is no surprise, poets like such symmetries. Which Circe skilled at spinning spells and threads alike, at weaving charms and cloths. Who am I to spoil an easy hexameter? But any wonder in my cloth comes from that loom and the mortal who made it. Even after so many centuries, its joints are strong, and when the shuttle slides through the warp, the scent of cedar fills the air. After I left, Daedalus built his great maze indeed, the labyrinth, whose walls confounded the minotaur's rage. Harvest piled upon harvest, and the twisted passageways grew ankle-deep in bones. If you listened, the palace servant said, you could hear the creature clattering up and down. And all the while, Daedalus was working. He daubed two wooden frames with yellow wax, and onto them he pressed the feathers he had collected from the great seabirds that fed on Crete shore, long pinioned, wide and white. Two sets of wings they made. He tied one to his own arms and one to his son's. They stood atop the highest cliff of Nosso shore and leapt. The ocean drafts caught them and they were borne aloft. East they went, towards the rising sun in Africa. Icarus whooped, for by then he was a young man and this was his first freedom. His father laughed to see him diving and wheeling. The boy rose higher still, dazzled by the sky's vastness, the sun's unfettered heat on his shoulders. He did not heed his father's cries of warning. He did not notice the melting wax. The feathers fell and he fell after into the drowning waves. I mourned for that sweet boy's death, but I mourned more for Daedalus, winging doggedly onwards, dragging that desperate grief behind him. It was Hermes who told me, of course, sipping my wine, his feet upon my heart. I closed my eyes to find that impression I had made of Daedalus's face. I wished then that we had conceived a child together to be some comfort to him. But that was a young and silly thought, as if children are sacks of grain to be substituted one for another. Daedalus did not long outlive his son. His limbs turned grey and nerveless, and all his strength was transmuted into smoke. I had no right to claim him, I knew it, but in a solitary life, there are rare moments when another soul dips near yours, as stars once a year brush the earth. Such a consolation was he to me. Oh, that last line. I know. I love that. Yeah, I love that bit. <laughs> oh, man. I love the bit about um her, like, making it easy for the poets because she's spinning yarns basically yeah and like how am i to get in the way of an easy hexameter that was such a good like it's such a good indication of character that she said that yeah definitely i know like i love that this bit like it gives you all those greek myths like there's so there's so many of them in this one tiny passage Mm. but it also has like so much imagery as well so like obviously the the weave in the loom which is like the weaving stories and songs like what you just said and then you've got like the wax of their wings and like the wax imprint of his face that she mentions. Oh, it's so clever. Yeah, and like the consolation image at the end is just like beautiful. Like it's just so lovely. Especially because all the constellations obviously come from myth and 
okay. yeah so i want to have a tiny achilles and patroclus interjection here before i start like going into like the big themes of the book so obviously last week we talked about like their ending in the song of achilles and whether them being reunited in the underworld was like enough for them Mm. or if achilles like regretted giving up his love for glory and in Circe, there's a point where Odysseus goes to the underworld and he comes back to Circe and he says, I saw Achilles and Patroclus and Ajax bearing the wound he gave himself. They envied me my life, but at least their battles are done. Oh. And um, <laughs> like, was that your cat? Yes. <laughs> Hi, Sprint, do you want to be on the podcast? <laughs> got a lot to say. <laughs> Carry on, sorry. Da, 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 where was I? Yeah, so while it doesn't like say this in so many words, I think with Achilles and Patroclus like envying his life, this suggests that they may regret not accepting like a long and happy life over eternal glory, which yeah. is very sad, but at least we know they're actually together. <laughs> yeah, at least you've got that confirmed. <laughs> so yeah, Still sad about it. Yeah, don't never, think I'll ever get over it. But no, never going to be okay. But <laughs> we move on. Yeah, but like I think this is a great way of reminding us like how Greek mythology is so intertwined. Mm. It's a focus of this book anyway. But I love that Miller has like, it's like she's taken it a step further and woven her own two novels together as I was, well. I was just about to say I love that she's like spoken back to her first novel in the second one that's such a like nice little thing to do yeah definitely and i do have like another quote here which includes achilles but it isn't isn't really about him but this is like a commentary on what it takes to be a hero okay so i think we we all have this like glamorized idea of what a hero is but odysseus here is explaining like brutality behind it i should also say because i don't think i mentioned odysseus like stumbles upon her island with some of his men. For anyone who like doesn't know the Odyssey, he finishes the Trojan War, like they win, they defeat Troy, they get in with the big wooden horse and like, you know, like kill all the men and steal all the women and it's very horrible. But then like Odysseus ends up on this really, really like year long voyage, just being like bounced about the ocean. Because <laughs> right. um, Poseidon hates him. I can't remember why, but he does. Um, so <laughs> they got beef <laughs> yeah so they they have like he has this issue where he's like basically always he can never get home basically and so he finds Cersei's island at one point and they meet and like they fall in love anyway this quote is about yeah like the brutality behind like what being a hero is okay do you know who truly wins wars he asked me one night we lay on the rugs at the foot of my bed Moment by moment, his vitality had returned. His eyes were bright now, storm-lit. When he talked, he was a lawyer and bard and crossroads charlatan all at once, arguing his case, entertaining, pulling back the veil to show you the secrets of the world. It was not just his words, though they were clever enough. It was everything together, his face, his gestures, the sliding tones of his voice. I would say it was like a spell he cast, but there was no spell I knew that could equal it. The gift was his alone. The generals take the credit, of course, and indeed they provide the gold, 
but they are always calling you into their tent and asking for reports of what you're doing instead of letting you go do it. The songs say it's heroes, they are another piece. When Achilles puts on his helmet and cleaves his red path through the field, the hearts of common men swell in their chests. They think of the stories that will be told, and they long to be in them. I fought beside Achilles. I stood shield to shield with Ajax. I felt the wind and fan of their great spears. Those soldiers, of course, are yet another piece, for though they are weak and unsteady, when they are harnessed together, they will carry you to victory. But there is a hand that must gather all those pieces and make them whole, a mind to guide the purpose and not flinch from war's necessities. And that is your part, I said, which means you are like Daedalus after all, only instead of wood, you work in men. The look he gave me, like purest unmixed wine. After Achilles died, Agamemnon named me best of the Greeks. Other men fought bravely, but they flinched from war's true nature. Only I had the stomach to see what must be done. His chest was bare and hatched with scars. I tapped it lightly, as if sounding what lay within. Such as? You promise mercy to spies, so they will spill their story. Then you kill them after. You beat men who mutiny. You coax heroes from their sulks. You keep spirits high at any cost. When the great hero Philoctetes was crippled with a festering wound, the men lost their courage over it. So I left him behind on an island and claimed he had asked to be left. Ajax and Agamemnon would have battered at Troy's locked gates until they died, but it was I who thought of the trick of the giant horse, and I spun the story that convinced the Trojans to pull it inside. I crouched in the wooden belly with my picked men, and if any shook with terror and strain, I put my knife to his throat. When the Trojans finally slept, we tore through them like foxes among soft-feathered chicks. There were no songs to sing before a court, no tales from the great golden age. Yet somehow in his mouth they did not seem dishonourable, but just and inspired and wisely pragmatic. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's so true though because he is—he's like he's the clever one and he sees everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he's so brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a really interesting quote because Miller's putting love and romance and war like side by side. Mm. So you're reading Cersei falling in love with this really like enigmatic man, but what he's talking about is so brutal. Yeah. And like, I suppose that's the balance that myth takes. Mm. So like, it's about like life and death and gods and love and all these like intertwining stories. And I think with a quote like this, which is all about war, but it's taking place in her bed, Mm. you've got this really interesting parallel and like, maybe a hint at what is to come in their story as well. Yeah, and it's like that, like, because you've got such a soft scene, but the war doesn't seem out of place because it's got that mythic tone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, she's so good. She's such a good writer. (laughs) But yeah, speaking of, like, intertwining stories, uh, I wanted to mention... One of my favourite things about this book, which is that she uses the metaphor of, of weaving on the loom to talk about stories. Like, it reminds us that you're listening to a story, which is something that Miller did in The Song of Achilles as well. So I think, like, she's just fascinated with that concept in general. 
-hmm. And like you may have picked up on it in some quotes already, but I do have another here which talks about stories. Later, years later, I would hear a song made of our meeting. The boy who sang it was unskilled, missing notes more often than he hit, yet the sweet music of the verses shone through his mangling. I was not surprised by the portrait of myself, the proud witch undone before the hero's sword, kneeling and begging for mercy. Humbling woman seems to me a chief pastime of poets, as if there can be no story unless we crawl and weep. We lay together in my wide gold bed. I had wanted to see him loosened with pleasure, passionate, laid bare. He was never laid bare, but the rest I saw. We did find some trust between us. Oh man. <laughs> that one's about Odysseus, if that wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, I love that. I love the idea of like, all the stories want the women to be undone. And she wants yeah. him to be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I just love that she's calling out like very stereotypical versions of not just Cersei, but like any woman. Like I don't think the Odyssey depicts Cersei as having the upper hand over Odysseus when he like stumbles upon the island, but mm. like she does. Right. <laughs> um, like she turns his men into pigs <laughs> and he kinda has to you know, he has to be clever Odysseus and like talk her out of it. But yeah, here we have like Cersei scoffing at that telling of their story and then immediately goes into that description of them sharing her her wide gold bed yeah and like them trusting each other it's almost just like a I don't know like well I'm proving you wrong (laughs) yeah and it's also like the idea of like oh this is what they say but like this is what was real which is obviously something that myth and like word of mouth like as we were saying Mm -hmm. last week the idea that the story that gets told and the story that gets lived are the same, but they're they're not. Yeah, in this passage, there's also like those words like mangling, listened, undone, all words that can be related to like thread in the loom as well. Mm. So she actually doesn't mention the loom here, but it's such a force throughout the book, like we've seen in like earlier quotes where she like talks about the poet you know, depicting her as, like, spinning spells and threads. That pervades so much throughout the book that I think you can still kind of feel its presence in this passage. Or, like, at least you can if you've, like, read all the book. Definitely. And I also just love that Greek mythology has this huge fascination with embroidery and tapestries and stuff because their belief is that your fate is destined by the cut of a thread. And I, I just feel like you get so much, like, in every Greek book I've read, which, like, isn't a huge amount, but I've read a fair few, and they're always talking about, like, the women embroidering stuff. Like, it just always comes up. I just think it's very interesting. <laughs> I wonder if that's why you felt compelled to do your embroidery this week. Oh, maybe. It could be. <laughs> that's true. You're like, I'm going to make my own fate. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, so speaking about fate, as we know, a huge part of Greek myth is this question of the fates of destiny, whether you can run from it or not, and that is also a huge part of this book. It's not Circe's fate that she wants to run from necessarily, it's actually more a question of Odysseus's fate and her son Telegonus's fate. Mm. So Odysseus is told that he will be killed by the sea, but on land. And neither he nor Cersei can like work out what that means. Okay. And years later, Telegonus is desperate to meet his father. Uh, Odysseus is gone from the island by this point. 
So he sails to Ithaca to find Odysseus and Circe has given him a weapon. It's the tale of an ocean god, Trigon. It's essentially like a very deadly like stingray like okay. tail. And she's given him this because she knows that Athena wants Telegonus dead for like prophecy reasons, which I'll just leave out <laughs> for time. But like Athena wants Telegonus dead, so she's trying to protect her son and she got him this weapon. What happens when Telegonus reaches Ithaca is Odysseus is so used to enemies and to people trying to infiltrate his island that he runs at Telegonus without listening to who he is and he ends up being caught by the weapon and immediately dies. Oh man. <laughs> Prophecy so, fulfilled. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I've got a short quote here where Telegonus comes back and tells Circe what happens and it is about that like prophecy question. The man I had laid with so many nights, dead from the weapon I had sent, dead in my son's arms. The fates were laughing at me, at Athena, at all of us. It was their favourite bitter joke. Those who fight against the prophecy only draw it more tightly around their throats. The shining snare had closed and my poor son, who had never harmed any man, was caught. He had sailed home all those empty hours with this crushing guilt on his heart. Aww, poor Telegonus. Yeah, I know. But yeah, I think this quote just answers that question of whether you can escape your fate or not, and the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, we will not be taking questions. <laughs> it is so interesting though, like, because you see it in the Song of Achilles as well, they they just think like, oh, well, we'll just never harm Hector, mm-hmm. and like, nothing bad will happen. But there was always going to be something that Hector did to... Yeah to make Achilles want to harm him. Um, And they were always going to bring it on themselves. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, it's almost like the more you fight against it, like, the crueler the justice is served. Yeah. Oh, the fates are mean. Yep. So, Madeline Miller has said that the core of her books is to look at the myths through a psychological perspective. She said herself that Circe is quite flat in Greek mythology. Um, okay. She's definitely underrepresented. There's not a lot said about her, but that gives Miller the opportunity to explore psychology behind her. With her writing, she can sort of like fill in the backstory. Mm. So, like, she asked, Why would this woman on a deserted island turn men into pigs? Why wouldn't she turn Odysseus into one? So, like, you're already unpicking that story of her witchcraft and how she uses her power, mm. her relationship with Odysseus, which then also leads to her son. It's just a very well thought out story. And when I was reading this, like, I could never guess where the plot was going. Yeah, because you're not really familiar with this character as well. Yeah, exactly. So, like, as I said, there's so many myths in here which I didn't know she was connected to. Like, there's Prometheus. The rivalry between the Titans and the Olympians, um, the Minotaur, Icarus, Scylla, like I'm leaving loads out, there's so many. Because <laughs> also like she's she's immortal so she's around for a very long time. Yeah. Like this book takes place over centuries but you wouldn't really, it doesn't feel like that when you're reading it. And to be fair most of it is over a short time, most of it is about Odysseus and like her son so that obviously can only be over a short time because Odysseus is mortal Mm. yeah it's very very fascinating yeah I love like how as well just as an aside like the book makes you smarter because it 
clues you in to all these different myths and how they could all connect. Like, it's just, like, a nice little peek in for someone that's not really studied classics or anything. Yeah, definitely, because, like, I haven't. Like, I really, I don't know my Greek mythology that well, but, like, I, you, you don't need to with this book. She explains it all for you. <laughs> yeah, which is nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to go into the ending of the book this time, but I will say it shows, like, lots of growth in Cersei. We go from seeing her as, like, someone who would punish another woman because the man that she loved chose her instead, mm. like, rather than punishing the man. Yeah. To someone, like, trying to fight against fate to save her son, to someone reaching, like, a level of acceptance. It's such a wonderful story, and even though there's, like, there are similarities between this and The Song of Achilles, they really are so different. Obviously, The Song of Achilles is like a doomed love story, whereas Circe is more about like one person and the way that she threads into other people's stories, but also like the journey she's on, like emotionally. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just like in such awe over <laughs> Madeline Miller's writing. Tonally as well, it sounds quite different. The quotes that you're reading out, like the language is similar, yeah. but the like this sounds funnier. Yeah, the language is similar. The sort of Tone's the kind of the wrong word, like the atmosphere maybe, like is kind of the same, but tonally it's different. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. No, but... I totally know what you mean. Like it sounds more feisty. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so I've like I've loved being able to talk about her for, for two episodes. And yeah, like I I hope I just glean like the tiniest bit of inspiration from her. Cause she's so good. Yep. And yeah, next week I'm going to talk about a different author, but it's another Greek mythology book that has actually been like acclaimed by Miller. Oh. So I'm very excited to share it with you guys. And that's me for this week. Woo! Well done. So, what are you infatuated with this week? Well, as you know, I'm delving into Taylor Swift's Folklore album for this little mini-series, mm-hmm. so I'm still infatuated with that. Last time I looked at the sort of artistic trajectory of the work and the main sort of narrative, if you like, because that was a fun way to introduce it, but today I'm going to be focusing on one concept that comes up in the album in really interesting ways. And the concept is the mad woman. Ooh. Yeah. So again, we did not try to coincide our themes, but <laughs> the witch is essentially the centre of my infatuation as well. So this is like a concept that we've covered on the pod before and reference mainly to Emily's gothic literature, but also to like confessional poetry, because we've talked about writers like Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Sylvia Plath and it's definitely that tradition of like feminist railing against so-called hysteria that is being recalled in this album I think like it definitely lives in that lore Mm -hmm. so the mad woman appears in two tracks on folklore the first one is called the last great American dynasty and the second one is called shock mad woman (laughs) and so the first thing that I want to talk about that I find really clever is the way that the word mad is treated in both songs In Last Great American Dynasty, we're told the story of Rebecca Harkness. Now, she was a real woman. She was the wife and then the widow of Standard Oil tycoon Bill Harkness. And 
Taylor now owns their old house on Rhode Island, which I will come back to, but that's why she's on this album. That's so cool. I know. (laughs) So Rebecca Harkness is a really interesting character because she was essentially, like, cast out as this, like, quote-unquote gold-digging party girl. After Bill Harkness died of a heart attack, the neighbourhood on Rhode Island, like, kind of blamed her influence. And this is summed up really well in the song by the lyrics... Their parties were tasteful if a little loud. The doctor had told him to settle down. It must have been her fault his heart gave out. So <laughs> so she was notoriously hated for like these lavish parties that she threw after he died. And like the general mischief with her friends, which they were referred to in real life and in the song as her bitch pack. As like, <laughs> as, like a, as like a play on like brat pack or rat pack or whatever, which I just think is so funny. There's also, this This isn't relevant to what I'm saying, but there's a really funny line in the song that says, like, in a feud with her neighbour, she stole his dog and died at Key Lime Green. And <laughs> some other people have done some digging and apparently it wasn't his dog, it was his cat, but she really did that. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> so she's a really interesting character. So going back to, to the song lyrics and this idea of the bitch pack... Already what we have here is like a really misogynistic and quite a gossipy voice narrating Mm -hmm. this song. It's assigning the blame to Rebecca for Bill's death and it's reinforcing this idea that because she married Rich and then he died, she is a gold digger. And so just employing Mm. that kind of snidey tone, I love it because Taylor Swift's kind of making a tongue-in-cheek dig at the way women have historically always been damned if you do and damned if you don't yeah the chorus of the song is where this gets really interesting because it goes in the first instance and they said there goes the last great american dynasty who knows if she never showed up what could have been there goes the maddest woman this town has ever seen she had a marvelous time ruining everything which i want that on my gravestone by the way there's like a lot <laughs> there's like a lot going on here, right? So first of all, we have the repetition of the phrase there goes. And that really creates this idea of like neighborhood gossip, small town, small minds. Yeah. Secondly, Rebecca is childless. The last great American dynasty has ended at her because Bill married a quote unquote middle class divorcee. This demonization of the childless woman, as we know, is classic gaslighting. Because childless women represent this like unsanctioned, unbridled sexuality which is threatening to the patriarchal order. So then we've got the blaming. Who knows if she never showed up what could have been. Followed by the kicker. There goes the maddest woman this town has ever seen. And so this song <laughs> is, is set just in the 20th century, not that long ago. But mad in the dialect of this narrator is clearly referring to like insanity or quote-unquote craziness which was often culturally linked to like a lack of moral purity and that's that's underscored by this assertion that she had a marvelous time ruining everything so here what swift's done is she set up the traditional mad woman which is morally corrupt materially decadent and sexually promiscuous i love the line she blew all the money on the boys and the ballet (laughs) (laughs) and she's childless and because of all those things she is a ruiner she is essentially a witch yeah right she's that she's that character sort of spinster does bad things lives on the house that you want to avoid and and by, by using like 
reportage, like the, the third person, we come to understand that it's not about whether or not any of this was true. This is what was said about her, so that is her legacy. And if I could put verbal footnotes, I'd be like, see my rant last week on the Reputation album. <laughs> In the context of the Folklore album as a whole, this is track three, so it's pretty early. And uh-huh. musically, this track is really light. Like, I think I've played it in the flat, so you'll have heard it. It's, like, quite fun. Yeah. It's, like, synthy drum beats and, like, guitar sounds. And there's, like, a kind of mischief in her madness, which tells us that, like, maybe these days she wouldn't be called mad. She'd just be called, like, carefree or, like, eccentric. Or, mm-hmm. you know, like, you could hope that now. But then we come to track 12, which is called Mad Woman. And this time the story is very, very different. First of all, musically, the song is dark. Like, it is very much all, like, piano. And it's got this really urgent, like, finger-picked guitar. It really reminds me of Jolene, actually. Ooh, yeah. You know, like, the... Like, going around and around. It sounds really anxious. And it is angry. It is an angry song. (laughs) Like, and so, in that other way, it's mad, right? And Taylor Swift... She's one of my favourite songwriters because she's always had this love of playing with language, particularly since she started dating her current boyfriend, Joe Alwyn, who is English, and so she's been living more in London. I've noticed her exploring different facets of words in, like, American English versus Queen's English. A fun early example of this is she has a song called King of My Heart. It was a couple of years ago, and she says in it, Say you fancy me, not fancy stuff. So, obviously, she's playing with the fact that in Britain, you'd use fancy as a verb as well as, yeah, it's fun. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but in Mad Woman, she employs the same technique with, like, a lot more depth. So, she's highlighting the two meanings of mad. Like, you've got traditional Queen's English, which is crazy, and later American angry. And I just wanted to point out, before I go into the lyrics, how well this concept of double meaning and the linguistic change feeds back into the idea of folklore and how narratives can be changed by the word of mouth medium of storytelling. Because depending on when you're speaking and who is speaking, it changes the story. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) So yeah, anyway, the song Mad Woman takes the character to a much darker place. It's speaking in first person rather than third. And it actually begins as if it's as if it's addressing the gossipy narrator of Last Great American Dynasty, because the first line mm-hmm. is just, what did you think I'd say to that? Oh. So there is that. there's a you, obviously, that has, they've said something first. Yeah. And I just love that idea. Like, it just, it starts out right on the front foot. It is in attack mode. It goes on, does a scorpion sting when fighting back? They strike to kill, and you know I will. So... This, again, is a really interesting beginning because as well as addressing that rumouring voice head-on, it includes a scorpion, which reminds me personally of, like, the Aesop's fables. Oh, yeah. The story of the scorpion and the frog, right? So for anyone who doesn't know, in the scorpion and the frog, scorpion asks the frog for a lift across the pond and the frog says, how do I know that you won't sting me? And the scorpion says, well, if I did, we'd both die. So the frog's like, cool, hop on, halfway across the pond... The scorpion stings the frog and the frog says, what did you do that for? Now we're both going to drown. And the scorpion says, it's just my nature. (laughs) So if you take that idea and apply it to this context, I think it would imply that whatever the narrator has said to that 
has been brought about by the nature of what's been said about her. So it's like a sort of, yeah. you, you, hate, you hated me for nothing, so I might as well act hateful. Like, you've said that's my nature, so this is just my nature. Yeah. And that cycle of rage breeding rage leads to a spiral out of control. So you can see how in the case of a woman who's actually been wronged, angry and crazy will begin to look the same. And that's reinforced in the chorus, like which is very simple about it, and it just says, every time you call me crazy, I get more crazy. What about that? And when you say I seem angry, I get more angry. And there's nothing like a mad woman. What a shame she went mad. No one likes a mad woman. You made her like that. And you poke that bear till her claws come out. Then you find something to wrap your noose around. And there's nothing like a mad woman. (laughs) So I love this because that repetition of crazy and crazy and then angry and angry is actually placed on the same beats in the pre-chorus. So it's basically breaking down the conceit in the music of this is the same thing. And like this is textbook gaslighting, like literally as we know in the film Gaslight, the the, the woman is driven to the brink of insanity by making a very real observation that the gaslight is flickering and then being told she's imagining it. So she's gaslit into actual insanity and then she's dismissed. No one likes a mad woman, what a shame she went mad. And that is enraging. Mm. (laughs) That that makes you so angry. And it links to, like, you can see it still, it links to dumb ideas like resting bitch face, right? So, like, when you see I mm. seem angry, I get more angry. Because you can completely be so calm, and then someone says you've got resting bitch face. And I'm like, well, now I do have a bitch face, because now I'm annoyed. Yeah, like, if you tell me to smile, it's going to make me not want to smile. Like. Right. <laughs> the worst is when someone has said, you seem off or you seem annoyed, and then you say, angrily, I'm not angry. <laughs> yeah. Because then you seem crazy, because mm-hmm. you clearly are angry. So it's like this infuriating cycle of, like, female <laughs> anger and female... Like, I keep saying the word craziness, and, like, obviously... That is derogatory in itself, but that's the word that gets used for it. But like anger and like genuine mental illness both being ostracized and then conflated because they're both ostracized. And I think she just captures that so beautifully with that image like you poke that bear till her claws come out and then you find something to wrap your noose around. Obviously, the song is coming from a place of very like capital letters feminist rage, but it's also something that Mm -hmm. Taylor Swift herself has so much experience of. Like, we've watched the media gaslight her and you've seen society all collectively go, I used to really hate Taylor Swift and I don't know why. And it's because of all the media narratives around 2014 to 16 that she was crazy or or vengeful or mad. And she's like, she's addressed this before. Like, her song Blank Space which, by the way, probably has my favourite music video of all time. It's very, very good. You should watch it. Um, (laughs) That song's written from the point of view of, like, this melodramatic persona that the media had made up for her with that brilliant hook, like, got a long list of ex-lovers, they'll tell you I'm insane, but I've got a blank space, baby, and I'll write your name. So it's making out, like, the men that she's wrote all of her love songs about were nothing more than the song fodder, which was what was being said about her. Yeah. And it obviously sounds ridiculous coming out of her own mouth, because it's ridiculous and that's the point and she played with the concept a bit later in her single the man from last year 
which focuses on the different vocabulary that's employed when speaking about sort of quote-unquote aggressive men versus aggressive women because she sings I'd be a fearless leader I'd be an alpha type when everyone believes you what's that like so like (laughs) the idea of this is what they would say about me if I was a man yeah but with the implication that what they actually say about her is she's a bitch she's crazy like Mm -hmm. you know and so you can trace the seeds of that concept through her work and how she's known it's more to do with the words that others use than what women actually feel but I just feel like here with especially with these two songs she's reached a real eloquence about it that she's been kind of grasping for because it's not like snarky and it's not sassy it's just angry yeah yeah and it's like now I'm angry because you've actually driven me mad so going back to last great American dynasty super quickly just to like wrap this together in the very last verse of that song she changes from the third person narrative about Rebecca, she, to first person, bringing the story into the present day using the link of the house that they've both lived in. So she says, 50 years is a long time. Holiday House sat quietly on that beach, free of women with madness, their men and bad habits, and then it was bought by me. Who knows if I never showed up what could have been. There goes the loudest woman this town has ever seen. I had a marvellous time ruining everything. So for me, this just says like history repeats itself. You know, Taylor shows up 50 years later after Rebecca (laughs) with her like parties and all her boys. And she's just as slut shamed and just as looked down on as Rebecca was 50 years later for doing what? She's living quite loudly in a place that wants its women to be quiet. And what's great about this verse is that now these women aren't called mad it's not there goes the maddest woman this town has ever seen it's there goes the loudest woman this town has ever seen because that's just the word that we use now to mean the same thing like loud women brash women the inference of like angry and crazy Mm -hmm. just lurks right at the back of that and i love how she's done an almost like blink and you miss it nuance of that observation there yeah I just I feel like those two songs together make a really astute observation of like both where we've been culturally and where we are now which yeah of course is what folklore as a concept does right it's it's, (laughs) it's timeless tales so yeah that was kind of my rant I didn't really let you get a word in but I just think it's so well done (laughs) that's okay (laughs) That was good, yeah. I um, I have heard, I've probably heard both songs. I definitely know like the last Great American Dynasty. Like I can, I can recognize that one. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I've heard the second one. I probably have. Um, it's just so from, dark. from you being around. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's very interesting. How is writing been going for you? Yeah, it's been alright. I've not done as much this week as I did last week, but it's going. It's going. Good. <laughs> I don't really have a lot to say today, to be mm. quite honest. I was meant to write something for this section yesterday, but I got distracted looking at Greek mythology memes. <laughs> <laughs> what a mood. That's, that's absolutely <laughs> valid and fair. <laughs> but, so what I decided to do... Was I wrote a poem. Oh, 
So we don't normally share like our actual writing on here, so I'm a little bit scared. <laughs> but it was a very rushed draft, so I don't feel like too nervous about reading it out because I think everyone's expectation should be low. Okay. Just, I wrote it in like five minutes. I'm so excited about this. <laughs> I also don't really write poetry, like for anyone who doesn't know, poetry's not really my thing. No, that's why I'm so excited. But this is a very on-brand poem about Achilles and Patroclus. <laughs> <laughs> and this is it, it's very short, and it's titled, Was It Worth It? The greatest tragedy of all is giving up sun-dappled limbs, is giving up fig-stained fingers, is giving up sea salt kisses. The greatest tragedy of all is knowing how good he is, is knowing how he thinks, is knowing how his name tastes. The greatest tragedy of all is surrendering besides. Oh, I love that. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, I love the name tastes line. That was my favourite. Oh, thank you. I like that line. Also, dope ass title. Just was it worth it? <laughs> You've got some serious beef with the story and I love it. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, yeah, there you go. It was very rushed. It's not my best work, but it's what we've got today. So. <laughs> no, that's like, that's so cool though. I love that you've just been so inspired by all your reading that you're like, I need to write a poem about this. I feel like I've been immersed in Greek mythology the past few weeks. I don't really know how else to, <laughs> like, what else to talk about. I mean, to be fair, our chat, like, our text chat, <laughs> has yeah. literally been me because I only communicate in song lyrics has been me sending screenshots of song yeah. lyrics being like, this reminds me of Achilles and Patroclus. It's making me so upset. Yeah, I've saved so many memes that I need to send to that group chat about like <laughs> Greek mythology. <laughs> oh, I'm buzzing for it, man. Hit me with all the memes. So yeah, that is my writing this week. How has yours been? Well, mine has been entirely non-existent because <laughs> I have been decompressing after my hand in and I haven't really Mm -hmm. been forcing myself to write anything but what I wanted to talk about today was I was kind of reflecting on the whole process of doing my dissertation and the like I had to write an essay right at the end of it there that like started from scratch I wrote it in about a week and a half so I was just thinking about like how that all went and I decided that what I wanted to talk about today was trash drafts so This is not a groundbreaking concept, but it's one that, to be honest, I still struggle with quite a lot in my writing. The idea Mm -hmm. that the first draft is probably not going to be very good. Yeah. And I think I struggle with this because I do come from, like, doing mainly poetry. And when I write a poem, the physical acts of, like, putting it down on paper or, like, typing it is very slow. Mm -hmm. Like, I hesitate and I think a lot on every word and I, like sketch out different variations in my head or like in the margins before I'll actually put one word in front of the other like on a line yeah so like sometimes not not always but often enough I end up with what looks like a pristine first draft of a poem but it's because it's taken me so long to write it yeah but prose is not like that for me anyway like if I'm writing long form I'm writing long form (laughs) and it takes me until about halfway into whatever I'm writing for me to know what I'm trying to say yeah what happened this time and what happens usually is I get really overwhelmed and like panicky about the waste of words that's come before me knowing Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say as if like I've got a finite amount that I'm allowed to write but anyway (laughs) 
<laughs> so if anyone else was struggling with this sort of meandering or like searching style of prose writing, I just wanted to share a way that I frame it in my head that makes it easier. So mm-hmm. what I say to myself is that this isn't me writing my story or my essay or whatever. Even if I'm writing in continuous prose, this isn't me writing it. I'm just planning it. Like, I'm researching it, whatever you want to call it. I've not started writing it yet because I haven't told myself the story yet. So I think in my head I have writing, like the word writing is the process of saying what I want to say the way I want to say it. And mm-hmm. I can I can get so hung up on the how that it really stops me from putting down the what to begin with. Yeah. So for me, I have to say this isn't a first draft, this thing. This is a trash draft. Which, by the way, is a term that I nicked from Laura Jane Williams, who is a really good introspective writer that Emily introduced me to. And I'd recommend her Instagram as a good corner of the internet. But yeah, this trash draft is me just figuring out what I'm saying. And then the first draft is me writing that thing the way I think I want to say it. And then there's always going to be like editing and revising second and third and fourth drafts. But like, yeah, I just thought it was... It was a little reflection that I had about my own process, but it's just helpful for me to remind myself and I thought it might be helpful for other people to just embrace the trash draft because if you think too much about what you're doing as writing, capital W, like, it's paralysing. It's always sad when you end up, like, deleting words Mm -hmm. because I think part of you always thinks, like, oh, that was such a waste. Yeah. But... You, you need to write the wrong words to eventually find the right words. So. Definitely. And I just really struggle to, like, every single project, I struggle to accept that and I struggle to start. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a quick fire favourite for us this week? Yes, I have two songs to recommend this week. Nice. They're both by Gang of Youths and they both take inspiration from Greek mythology, so we're hey. still on brand. <laughs> the first is called Achilles Come Down, which is obviously about Achilles. Gang of Youths essentially turn like his relentless quest for glory to like a kind of suicide. So you've got like lyrics asking Achilles to like come down to get off the roof. But the lines that really get me are the ones which I think are like so clearly being said by Patroclus. The lyrics are The self is not so weightless, nor whole and unbroken. Remember the pact of our youth. Where you go, I'm going, so jump and I'm jumping, since there is no me without you. Oh man. <laughs> Ow. It's so sad. Yeah, it's it's obviously it's a very dark song. Even like the, the instrumentals, it's quite there's a lot of strings, but it's really good. And the second song is Atlas Drowned. So apparently this is actually like a social political commentary against like government control and okay. hierarchy. And it's inspired by their dislike for Atlas Shrugged, the book by, is that Anne Rand? Is that how you say her name? I think so. I don't know. It's A Y N. I think it's Ayn Rand, yeah. But yeah, it's apparently a response to the selfishness that is promoted by that book. Okay. I've not read Atlas Shrugged, so I can't really like comment on that. But I do love that this fits into the Greek myth tradition of 
using said myths to explore issues which are happening in the current climate, which like obviously you touched on mm. earlier. It's a super angry song, but it's like really catchy. And the vocals, I mean, the vocals are great in Achilles Come Down, but the vocals in this one, I think, are even better. And the first verse goes, I'm not leaving tonight, cram the armour and chains where the sun will not shine. And who's to say they won't bitch out and shoot me on sight? Get that thing out my face, I don't care what it says, this is my goddamn place. A traitor to country and glad, because my country's disgraced. Oh, that's so raging, I love it. I love the, like, who says they won't bitch yeah. out. But yeah, that's it, Just a very angry song, a very good song. Both of them are really great. And yeah, before I throw over to you, I'll just remind everyone again that we've now got the Infatuated mix on Spotify. All the songs that we mention are on there and it is in the show notes if you're interested. Yeah, Rebecca, take it away. Cool. Our (laughs) favourite. Just to add to that, like, Emily lives to make playlists. Please go and listen to it. (laughs) Like, the fact you literally sent me a text the other day being like, my co-star says I'm not to make mood playlists today. What am I going to (laughs) do? It's on my Spotify that infatuated mix so feel free to browse my other playlists <laughs> well my quick fire favorite is also like a song slash album it's not an album mm-hmm. that's new at all but it's new to me emily made me a mix cd for my birthday and she put <laughs> one of the songs from this album on it and i loved it so it came out in 2011 and it's an album called mutual friends by boy and they're very mm-hmm. like as you know alt pop band like really sweet chill sound and the album itself I just really like because it covers a lot of ground. Like, they have songs about waiting for your life to start or about time killing love, which is very, <laughs> very on brand for Achilles or fe- like feeling like someone's unattainable or whatever, like the usual. But I think one of my favourites is very on brand for me, a platonic love song. And we, we know from episode seven how much I love an ode to friendship. So <laughs> yeah. it's, the, it's the song Army. It's like the verses are lovely, the whole song is lovely, but the chorus is just so happy and like the music's really upbeat and it goes, they stand taller than giants, they outshine all the stars, they are the love above the love, they're my army of fortune, they win every war, they are the love above the love. (laughs) And I just love it, I think that's like one of my favourite descriptions of the way that friendship like can transcend other types of love, just like they are the love above the love. And also, it rolls off the tongue really nicely. It's a nice phrase. Mm-hmm. That's my quick fire favourite, which you knew, so it's kind of cheating. Nice. But there you go. Have you got a rant this week? I don't know if I would call this a rant. This is more of a amusing, if you will, an appreciation. What I've been thinking about persistently today... Mm-hmm is wheelbarrows okay so bear with me so like this summer me and my well my dad has been landscaping our garden and i've been taking a lot of photos of it like progress photos and i've come to find that the ones that i like the best are always the ones that have his like green wheelbarrow either in the foreground with him using it or in the background like there's just something so aesthetically pleasing about a wheelbarrow (laughs) and so (laughs) Like I, just, I, I, like, I just kept noticing it in my photos. And so, like, I did some research. And I think maybe what's so pleasing about them is that they're ancient. 
So the earliest recorded use of the wheelbarrow was 200 AD. Oh my god. So like, they're nearly 2,000 years old and the design has not changed. (laughs) The materials have changed, obviously. They're a lot lighter and easier Mm -hmm. to, to use now. But in 2,000 years, the best way to transport heavy loads on foot is still one wheel, two handles in a cart. And I just think it's a great invention. I think that it's so cool that we've like perfected a piece of mechanics so early on in humanity that uh-huh. it's just not changed. And I think it's probably why I like the look of it so much because it's like that must by this point be evolutionarily imprinted into the human brain that like that's a good shape. That's a useful thing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I just think wheelbarrows are dope. That's that's my rant for today. That's amazing. <laughs> I really pulled that one out of my arse today, I'll have you know. Right, do you have an insight right. for us this week? Yes, I do. So, surprise, surprise, we're on Greek mythology again. Mm-hmm. I was looking into the link between, and this is quite funny because you mentioned it earlier, Greek mythology and astrology. Okay. And I came across the aptly named GreekMythology.com. This website says that astrology and mythology are interconnected as mythology offers a background story to astrology. Mm. Astrological terminology has its roots in Greek and Roman mythology. All astrological constellations have mythological names. And so what I thought I'd do is have a little look at our zodiac signs, Pisces and Taurus, because I kind of guessed yours was about like some sacred bull. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, the Minotaur was very big Taurus energy. Yeah, but I have no idea what like fish made up Pisces, because obviously the Pisces symbol's two fish. Mm. So this is what I found. I'll do, I'll do yours first, I think. Okay. Taurus the bull is the second sign in the zodiac and represents those born between April 20th and May 20th. Taurus comes from the story of Europa. She was the daughter of King Agenor of Phoenicia and Telephassa. Europa became the object of Zeus's affections, surprise, surprise, and he appeared to her as a beautiful white bull at the Phoenician waterside. The princess was awestruck by the beauty of the bull and walked over to pet it. She then climbed upon his back, at which Zeus jumped into the water and carried her across the sea to Crete. He took the form of an eagle there and ravished her. She eventually bore him three sons, whose names were Minos, who, I could be making this up, but I'm pretty sure he ends up being the husband of Cersei's sister. Yeah. The one who has the bill. The Minotaur, yeah. Yeah. Radamanthus and Sarpedon. Zeus placed the image of the bill in the heavens. A group of stars called the Hyades make up Taurus's head, and another group of stars called the Pleiades make up part of the bill as well. The Pleiades are a bright galactic cluster and the brightest seven make up their own constellation. Ah. And then it says, according to astrology, Taurus is an earth sign and the traits of those born under the sign Taurus include practicality and stubbornness. Well, I wouldn't know anything about that. (laughs) That's so cool though. Yeah, I know I liked that story. Hmm. I just love that it's like, it's just such a running joke that like, if there is a woman, Zeus will have sex with it. (laughs) And he's always an animal. Why is he always an animal? I know. I don't... I really don't get it. No wonder Hera, like, hates him. Yeah. Right, so here is the Pisces description. Okay. 
Pisces is the 12th sign in the zodiac and represents those born between February 20th and March 20th. Pisces is the fishes. In Greek mythology, these two fish were Aphrodite and Eros. They were walking... I know I didn't know that. <laughs> they were walking along the Euphrates River when Typhon appeared. They were scared and unable to run, so they called upon Zeus for help. He turned them into two fish and they jumped in the river and escaped. Athena placed the fish among the stars and they became the constellation of Pisces. According to astrology, Pisces is a water sign and people born under this sign are compassionate, adaptable, devoted and imaginative. Oh, that's so nice. I know. I love how you you have like the romance gods and they're just like, <laughs> we're scared and we're just going to jump in the river and be fish and it's adorable. And mine is like, Zeus raped another girl. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the fact that like my zodiac is based on Aphrodite and Eros just says a lot about me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you were the one that came up with the name of this podcast, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, I love Aphrodite, she's just... A queen. I love her, yeah. Yeah, and that is me this week, that's my insight. Oh, I love that, that was so fun. Okay, so I've got the question this week and, oh, I forgot to write the person's name down. Sorry, person that sent this in. It was on my Instagram, I forgot, sorry. (laughs) Thank you to whoever you are. (laughs) It's a good question though. They've asked, what is something you love that the other person recommended to you? Oh. Which I feel like, first of all, I should say is quite hard for me because I'm notoriously bad for taking people's recommendations. Yeah, I don't recommend stuff to Emily because it makes her less likely to interact with it. And it's not just me, it's anyone. <laughs> no, it's, it's anyone. I just feel like uh, as soon as someone tells me I'm going to like something, I have an aversion to it. I know, which is why I don't recommend things to but I could, I did think of one though. Okay. Quite a recent one actually. You recommended Wish You Were Sober by Conan Gray to me. And I love that song. That's a really good song. I knew, I only knew Maniac by him, like before. Mm. And then you recommended that one. And it's very good and I listen to it all the time. Well, there you go. Contrary to your belief, I know what you like. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. It's a problem. It's okay, I actually don't mind because it means that you're just the one that gives me all the recommendations and I just get all, like, <laughs> I just have my own little media curator that I live with and I don't ever have to look for my own stuff, which is nice. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I could say Song of Achilles because obviously you recommend yeah. that and I've loved it. But we've talked about that a lot, so I'll try and think of a, of a second one. Bookwise, one that stands out is you recommended Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Oh, Reed. yeah. And I yeah, loved, loved that. that book. I loved it so much that I went and bought another one of her books, which I recommend to you. <laughs> the Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo. What else? Music-wise, well, you introduced me to Boy, so I've already covered that in this episode. <laughs> And let me try... I bet you I can hit films and TV as well. Let me think. (laughs) You recommended The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And even though Mm -hmm. I did not like the first few episodes, I grew to like it. So that was quite an impressive one. Mm -hmm. And film-wise... Try to think of things that I didn't think I would already like. Oh, well, the other night we watched Captain Marvel. And I don't really like superhero films. Mm. But I did like that one. So... There you yeah, go. I, did, I did think out of like all the Marvel films, that was one you would like. Yeah. 
So yeah, Emily's pretty good at recommending shit to me. That's a good <laughs> question. That was fun. It was. So that is us then. That is us. This episode, if it's got any weirdness in it, we apologise. We're doing it remotely again, which is subpar. I know. We think next week will be in person, we think. So. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, tune in next week. We have part three, the final part of this myth and folklore series. Oh, I've had such fun with this already, by the way. I'm so, like, buzzing about it. I know, same. And, yeah, if you have any questions for us, any comments, please email us at infatuatedpodcast.outlook.com. We have social media as well that you can contact us on. Everything is linked in the show notes. And I think that's us. Thanks for listening. (laughs) See you next week.